Hey, Matt Techman here from Elucidations. Before we get going, I just thought I'd put in a quick plug for Pippa. We've been doing our hosting with them since 2016, and it's been a fantastic experience. So if you have a podcast, you might check them out. They have great analytics, the service is free, and they make it easy to migrate. So if you're curious, visit their website at pippa.io. All right, thanks. Hello and welcome to Elucidations, a philosophy podcast ordinarily recorded at the University of Chicago, but which today is being brought to you from Palo Alto. With me is R.A. Briggs, professor of philosophy at Stanford University, and they are here to discuss epistemic decision theory. R.A. Briggs, welcome. Uh, hi, thanks. So recently in philosophy, there's been this really cool area that maybe not everybody knows about called formal epistemology, which tries to bring some mathematical methods to bear on traditional philosophical questions in epistemology. What's epistemology? Well, roughly, it's the study of like how to make good use of evidence to confirm your hypotheses, to arrive at knowledge of things, something like that. What is knowledge? What is belief? So formal epistemology studies some of these questions using some of the machinery of mathematics. I think a lot of people might find it surprising that you could use the formal machinery of mathematics to study these big, grand philosophical questions. So how does that exactly work? So I think that already people in a lot of disciplines are using uh, the tools of mathematics to study these grand philosophical questions. So statistics is basically a kind of formal epistemology. You want to know the answer to some really complicated question. You know, what are the effects of drinking a glass of red wine every day, to sort of pick an example. And then you have sort of easy to observe things about, like, who drank red wine in your study that you, you can fund and you can maybe control who drinks red wine. And you can observe what happens to them. But the causal relationships are really hard to observe. And it's hard to tell whether something is just a noisy coincidence in any one case or whether there's a real pattern there. So statistics is kind of a set of tools for helping you to spot patterns. And logic is a set of tools for sort of doing reasoning in a controlled and formal manner. So I think the idea that uh, mathematical tools could help you with the job of epistemology is sort of has been there for a long time and is just in accordance with how people in a lot of disciplines already reason. So a lot of the research in formal epistemology is sort of interdisciplinary with this branch of both philosophy and economics, referred to as decision theory. So what exactly is decision theory? Where did that come from? And is that how did that come to be part of philosophy? Right. So decision theory is basically uh, using mathematical methods, the way formal epistemology uses them to study epistemology questions about sort of using evidence. But uh, decision theory uses them to study how to make a good, prudent, rational decision. So uh, I have generally, when I'm making a decision, some uncertainty. So I want to know what career to choose, but I don't know exactly what the outcome of any choice will be. And I also have sort of some goals, some values uh, that I can attach to certain outcomes. So decision theory uses usually probability to model the uncertainty and then uh, attaches numbers to the outcomes measuring how good they are, called utilities. 
and then advises you based on probabilities and utilities how to make a decision. So it seems like this is the kind of thing you would program into a robot. Like, you you know, if you had a robot and you wanted to give the robot certain objectives, certain things it needed to accomplish, and then it needed to reason about how to accomplish those objectives and what to do based on the information it had, like decision theory is what you would you would try to write software that had some of these ideas from decision theory in it. Yeah, and I think some people do this. I think certainly on the probability side, there are a lot of Bayesian learning al- algorithms which use sort of the same kinds of tools that formal epistemologists use. And actually, oh, reinforcement learning. So reinforcement learning in computer science is basically a, a version of decision theory that you can use to sort of talk about robots and their goals and maybe program robots. So two key ideas in this area of study are what philosophers and economists called expected value and dominance. So what do these kind of like technical terms mean? Good. So expected value is basically uh, something you use to judge how good a bet is. Like it's a number you use to measure how good the bet is. If you've got numbers to measure how good all the possible outcomes of the bet are and how likely the possible outcomes. So I think gambling, like casino gambling, is a really natural context to talk about expected value. So I want to know whether to play the slot machines. And I have to pay a quarter to play the slot machines once. You know, I could win a million dollars in the slot machines, potentially. And so I want to know, is the chance at a million dollars worth the quarter I put into the slot machines? And a way to evaluate that is to think, how likely is it that I win the million dollars? And let's suppose that the million dollars is the only possible prize of the slot machine. Otherwise, I win nothing. You could multiply the probability of the million dollars by a million, which is the value of the million dollars, and see whether that number got you something more or something less than 25 cents. And if you play an actual slot machine, it's going to get you something less than 25 cents because that's how that house makes money. Because sort of on average, uh, you can expect if you play the game a lot to win about the expected value. That's why expected value is a good name for it. Yeah, so it's sort of like an algorithm for weighing on the one hand the amount of resources you put into something versus both the likelihood that you'll get something good back and how much good you'll get back. Yes, that's a great way to put it. Okay, and what about dominance? So dominance is a way of making comparisons between uh, possible courses of action, even when you don't have enough information to calculate an expected value. So sometimes you don't know the probabilities of outcomes in any way that you can sort of attach a number to. So suppose I am trying to decide whether to accept your generous offer to have dinner with me, or whether instead to accept your even more generous offer to have dinner with me and pay me $5. So you might think, look, assuming that the $5 sort of doesn't like queer the friendship in any way, I should definitely have dinner with you and accept the $5 rather than just have dinner with you. Because if I just have dinner with you, I might have like a great dining experience, I might get food poisoning. But if I have dinner with you and accept $5 from you, then I'm going to have whatever experience I would have had just having the dinner is plus $5. So no matter what the outcome of the second choice is, it's always going to be better than the outcome of the first choice. So if one action is always going to yield a better outcome than another action, then the first action is said to dominate the second. And so it might be that I shouldn't accept either of those two offers. It might be that I should... It might be that I'm feeling tired that night and I, I would do better by just staying home and not having either of these dinner offers. But if I do decide to have dinner with you, I definitely shouldn't take the worse offer rather than the better one. 
So dominance is a way of ruling out options. If one option is such that like something else is better than it no matter what, you shouldn't take the one that's worse no matter what. You should either take the better no matter what option or some other thing. So you should take the dominating option rather than the dominated option. Okay, right. So it's like if we compare every possible outcome and we compare how good or bad each possible outcome is relative to how much I invested in the decision or how many resources I poured into the decision, if no matter what the possible outcome is, one course of action is going to get me more good stuff, then it dominates. That's right. That's what dominance is. So another distinction that people who work in this area are interested in is the difference between revising your beliefs in light of new evidence in a way that obeys the rules of probability and revising your beliefs in light of new evidence in a way that doesn't obey the rules of probability. What are these rules of probability? So actually, the the rules of probability uh, just govern my beliefs at any one time. So even not looking at the evidence, um, I can look at my beliefs and ask, do these obey or violate the rules of probability? And their function is to be something like almost rules of logic. They tell you whether your opinions are consistent. Formal epistemologists are interested in opinions that are more fine-grained than just believing something or failing to believe it. They think I can also have degrees of confidence. So for instance... I'm pretty confident that my dog will want to go for a walk soon. I'm even more confident that if I haven't taken her for a walk in two hours, she'll want to go for a walk. So I'm more confident of one proposition than another. I'm still more confident that the sun will still rise tomorrow. So I can compare these different opinions about different propositions according to how confident I am in them. And I can also, uh, formal epistemologists think, sort of slap numbers on them. I'm 25% confident that my dog wants to go for a walk right now. I'm sort of 75% confident that if I don't walk her now, she'll want to go for a walk in an hour. I'm 99% confident that the sun will rise tomorrow. Yeah, and we say this all the time in everyday conversation, right? I'm 99% sure that blah, blah, blah. Exactly. So I haven't gotten to probability yet. So probability is supposed to be uh, rules that govern how your degrees of confidence play together. So here's a good example. There's a story that Daniel Kahneman and Amos Tversky like to tell their experimental subjects about Linda, who wears Birkenstocks, eats granola, and goes to take back the night marches. And they like to ask their experimental subjects, how confident are you that Linda is a bank teller? experimental subjects will name some number like 20% and they'll say, ah, but how confident are you that she's a feminist and a bank teller? And the subjects will generally name a higher number. Oh, I'm sort of 80% confident of that. And those degrees of confidence violate the probability rules. So Linda can only be a feminist and a bank teller if she's a bank teller. And if you're only 20% confident that she's a bank teller, you should be no more confident than that, that she's a feminist and a bank teller. Right. And intuitively, the reason for that is that being a feminist bank teller is more specific than just being a bank teller. There are way more different ways of being a bank teller than being a feminist bank teller, because being a feminist bank teller is like a narrower category. That's right. So the probability rules govern sort of the consistency of opinions. So being really confident that she's a feminist and a bank teller while not being very confident that she's a bank teller, is inconsistent. And the probability calculus is supposed to tell you what it is to have sort of consistent opinions at a time. Okay, interesting. So basically what the probability rules are doing is they're supplementing like the laws of logic, which tell you, hey, don't believe both that 
Palo Alto is in California and that Palo Alto isn't in California. It's supplementing the rules of logic with this idea that, well, it's not just I believe this statement or I don't. Now it's I can have a like a numerical what people call credence. I can have a like a percent degree of belief in it. So once you add this idea of being able to like believe something, oh, only a little bit or a little bit more, rather than just having to believe it or not believe it, to logic, you get these probability rules. That's right. Yeah, and you introduced the words credence and degree of belief, which I think was a good idea because we'll need them later, which are just sort of measures of how confident I am in something, which is what we've been talking about. <laughs> so another distinction that people in this area are interested in is the difference between different like strategies for updating your beliefs in light of new evidence, which seems we do all the time. You know, I get new information about something, and now I believe a bunch of new things that I didn't believe before. So people who work in this area are interested in comparing different like possible rules for updating your state of belief in the light of new evidence. And one distinction that's been really important in this area of research is the difference between strategies for updating your beliefs that obey a rule called conditionalization and strategies that don't. So what does this conditionalization rule say? So this is probably best illustrated with an example. Suppose that I discover little footprints in the cheesecake I've left out last night. I should then become really, really much more confident that I have mice in my house based on these little footprints. And you might want to know, why should I do that? And one answer is, well, you can look at my opinion before I found the footprints in my cheesecake and ask, well, so how confident was I that I would find these footprints? And you could give many answers. And how confident was I that I would find these footprints and that they would be due to mice? And I should be almost as confident that I'll find them and they'll be due to mice as I should be that, that I'll find them in the first place. Because, you know, if I find them, what else could they be due to? So conditionalization says, take how confident you are in some hypothesis combined with your evidence, like that I find footprints and that they're due to mice. So the footprints are my evidence, the mice are my hypothesis. And divide that by how confident you were in just the claim that you'd get the evidence. And that should be how confident you are. That sort of quotient should be how confident you are in the hypothesis once you've learned the evidence. So if it was really, really likely relative to the evidence that I find footprints in my cheesecake that those footprints are due to mice. And if I thought that before I got the evidence, well, once I get the evidence, I should update by thinking it's really, really likely that the footprints are due to mice. Suppose I was very unconfident at first that I would find any footprints. So I was only, say, 10% confident that this would happen to me. Still kind of silly to leave the cheesecake out, but we're not critiquing my housekeeping here. And suppose that I was 9% confident that I find the footprints and they're due to mice. Well, then how confident should I be that there are footprints and they're due to mice now that I learned that there are footprints. It should be a sort of the 9% confident that I was in footprints and mice divided by the 10% confident I was in footprints in the first place. And that ends up being 90%. Okay, great. So that means that if you were to discover these footprints, then you would be 90% confident that they were due to mice. That's right. If I were updating by conditionalization, as many formal epistemologists think I should. So another way to say it is that you can sort of take how confident I am beforehand that if there are footprints, then they're due to mice. And then once I learn that there are footprints, 
that number should be how confident I now am that the footprints are due to mice. Now, that's a little bit controversial because uh, some people have different interpretations of if, but I think that that's roughly right. Yeah, thus the name conditionalization. Yes. (laughs) So do you think this is right? Do you think that the best way to determine what your updated beliefs would be if you were to acquire some new piece of information should follow this rule? Mostly. So I think that it should follow this rule if you've thought hard enough about the evidence you might receive and the evidence doesn't teach you any new concepts and you don't discover that any of your previous beliefs were wrong. So in good circumstances, I think that you should update this way. And in bad circumstances, you should probably do something else, although I'm not sure exactly what. And what would be some of these bad circumstances with the footprint example? So in the footprint example, suppose that I took myself to know for certain there would be no footprints in my cheesecake. I don't know, I've hired the exterminator in whom I have 100% confidence. And then I discover footprints in my cheesecake anyway. Well, now I can't conditionalize because I can't. So conditionalizing required me to divide something by how confident I was that I would find footprints in my cheesecake. If that number is zero, I can't divide by zero. And 100% confident here means that you're just like absolutely all in. You'd bet your life on it. That's absolutely right, yeah. Okay, that seems pretty intuitive. It seems like if you were somehow pulled out all the stops, took radical measures to guarantee, I don't know, what you you made sure the mouse population went extinct or something, radical measures to guarantee there were not going to be any footprints in your cake, and then you saw footprints in your cake, you would have to maybe adopt a non-standard strategy for dealing with this new information. Right. And another case where you maybe shouldn't conditionalize is where you gain new concepts. For instance, if you have all this funny data that you just don't know how to explain on your existing theory, so you shine a light through a grating and you get these weird wavy patterns from the light and that doesn't make any sense, and you shine a light through a pinhole and it diffuses like it was made of like normal particles and that doesn't make any sense given that it behaved like it was waves uh, when you've shown it through the grating. And then physicists come up with a new theory that explains how light can behave both like a particle and like a wave. You should get much more confident in the new theory, even if you didn't get any new piece of data exactly, if you just got a new set of concepts to explain the data. Hmm. So something like whether a theory is explanatorily satisfying or whether it's a good fit for the data or whether it doesn't make the data seem mysterious or something like that can maybe also affect our confidence that we uh, place in well, some belief? Or So I guess the crucial thing is that acquiring a new theory can increase your confidence that none of your old theories was right, even though you didn't have some sort of prior confidence that if you acquired this new theory, then none of your old theories is right because you didn't have the concept of the new theory. And in fact, you didn't necessarily learn any new data. You just got a way to conceptualize your old data that sort of radically decreases your confidence in all of these theories that are maybe still compatible with your old data, although they're kind of explanatorily inelegant. So we've discussed some very interesting corner cases here where maybe you shouldn't conditionalize when you get new information, but it seems like maybe it's a pretty great rule of thumb in general. Yes, (laughs) Follow through with your epistemic plans or don't make them in the first place. (laughs) Earlier on, we talked about the idea that the degrees of belief you have in different 
statements need to play nicely together. And we mentioned that there are these uh, rules of the probability calculus that tell us how our degrees of belief are required to play nicely with each other. So is that right? Do they really need to play together in the way that we described? Uh, or there, like, are there alternative ways of thinking and believing, possibly, that also make sense besides this one? Right. So it seems possible to have degrees of confidence that don't play nicely together the way the probability axioms tell them to. But it seems like a bad idea, and you might want me to substantiate that. Why is it a bad idea? And so this is where uh, formal epistemology and decision theory can actually sort of be brought together in a new discipline called epistemic decision theory, uh, because it combines features of both. So epistemic decision theory starts from the idea that belief has a goal, and even sort of degrees of belief have a goal. So belief aims at sort of truth and at avoiding error. So if I'm 70% confident that it will rain and it does rain, like, was my degree of belief true or false? Ah, that seems like maybe not quite a useful question to ask, but you can ask, how accurate was my degree of belief? And it looks like it was more accurate than it would have been if I'd only been 50% confident in its raining, given that it did rain. And it's sort of less accurate than if I'd been 90%. And maybe you can come up with sort of numbers to measure degree of accuracy. And so... Epistemic decision theorists think degrees of belief aim at accuracy. And you should try to have degrees of belief that are more accurate rather than less. And if I want to know what should I do in conditions of uncertainty in order to achieve my goals, well, I should ask decision theory. Now, I can't exactly calculate the expected value of my degrees of belief necessarily because I don't have a probability function handy to do that. But I can use dominance reasoning to tell me things about what degrees of belief I should have. So if I had sort of two overall systems of belief or sets of degrees of belief, and one of them was always more accurate than the other, no matter what the world was like, then I shouldn't choose the one that was dominated with respect to accuracy. Maybe I I shouldn't choose the the dominating one because there's something even better than it, but I definitely shouldn't choose the dominated one. And it turns out that you know, if you make the right assumptions about how to measure accuracy, you can prove that uh, sort of overall systems of degrees of belief that obey the probability axioms are never dominated by anything. And ones that violate the probability axioms are always dominated, and furthermore, they're always dominated by one that obeys the probability axioms. So you shouldn't violate the probability axioms because you'll sort of be shooting yourself in the foot if what you want is to have accurate beliefs. Okay, nice. So we're going to use the same strategy we used earlier when we tried to kind of like numerically compute whether one course of action always led to more payoff than another relative to the, all the different possible outcomes and all the everything that I invested in the course of action. We're going to like transplant that to the what should I believe case, but then instead of looking at expected value, because it's not really clear what that's going to be here, we're going to look at how accurate are the new beliefs given all the different possible outcomes going to be. We're going to use that. That's going to be like the the equivalent of the payoff here. Yes. Apart from that, we're going to use the same method to compare different strategies for updating your belief the way before we compare different courses of action. That's exactly right. So you're treating sort of beliefs as courses of action 
with uncertain outcomes, but the outcome here is accuracy. So we just gave an argument for why it's better to follow the probability rules. It's going to just turn out better for your beliefs. They're going to end up being more accurate if you follow the probability rules than if you don't. Is there a similar argument we could give for conditionalizing on the basis of possible new evidence you might get? So there is a similar argument. Also, it's not quite true that uh, if you follow the probability rules, your your beliefs will end up more accurate than they would have if you didn't. So there are going to be some pairs of ways where one way of forming beliefs obeys the probability rules and one way violates the probability rules. And the one that violates the probability rules is going to be more accurate in your actual circumstances. But take that way of forming beliefs that violates the probability rules. There's some other way of forming beliefs that also obeys the probability rules, not not necessarily the one you started with. And that way of forming beliefs is going to be more accurate in your actual circumstances and in any other possible circumstances. So that's why you should obey the probability rules. So slightly more complicated than just whenever you obey the probability rules, you are more accurate than you would be if you violated them. It's just that whenever you violate them, there's some way of obeying them that does better. Getting back to conditionalization, is there a good argument for conditionalizing that appeals to this accuracy and this epistemic decision theory stuff? And the answer is, well, yes, there are at least two. (laughs) So the first one is given by Hilary Greaves and David Wallace. And it's actually an appeal not to dominance, but to expectation. So they imagine you sort of starting out with a prior sort of set of degrees of belief. And you're asking, you know, should I conditionalize? So I'm going to get some new evidence. And they imagine that you've got sort of a set of possible things that you could learn, like you've got a question you could answer. And you're just looking for the answer to that question as your next piece of evidence. You don't know which answer is true, and you're going to observe which answer is true. And their question is, uh, well, given what I believe now, should I think that it's a, a good idea from the standpoint of accuracy to conditionalize rather than do something else? And they show that, it, that you should think it's a good idea in the sense that you should think that uh, conditionalizing has a higher expected degree of accuracy than any other policy where that expected is calculated with your current degrees of belief, which they assume are probabilities. You know, they ought to be probabilities because there's a dominance argument for them to be probabilities. So you can assume that they're probabilities because we assume you're doing everything right. And then we ask, is a further thing you ought to do to plan to conditionalize? Answer yes, because it turns out that conditionalizing will maximize your expected accuracy. So it's a good bet the way that being the house in a casino is a good bet and being the gambler in a casino is not a good bet, but where you're gambling with accuracy instead of with money. So the argument just discussed perhaps establishes that if you're in an initial belief state, which possibly in addition to other virtues at least follows the probability rules, then your best bet is to conditionalize. Could we make a more, as it were, unconditional argument for conditionalizing that's not based on the initial belief state that you start with? Yes. Uh, it turns out that Richard Pettigrew and I have such an argument. So to run this argument, you have to sort of think in terms of sort of assessing the accuracy, not of individual belief states, but of sort of sequences of belief states. So you can imagine sort of, I've got my beliefs now, which are formed 
on the basis of less evidence. I learned something. Hopefully I don't forget anything. I've got my beliefs later. And they're formed on the basis of more evidence. And I can ask not just what will make me the most accurate later, but what will make me sort of the most accurate on average over the course of my life? If you think about things that way, then you can get a different kind of argument going for conditionalization. So you can imagine me sort of in two stages. First stage, I ask, what do I believe now? And the second stage, I ask, what do I plan to believe when new evidence, the answer to some question, comes in? And I can assess sort of combinations of answers to those two questions. And I can assess which combination of answers will get me sort of the best average lifetime accuracy. And it turns out that if I plan to adopt degrees of belief that obey the probability axioms, and then I plan to conditionalize on those degrees of belief to get new degrees of belief that also will end up obeying the probability axioms, then no strategy will do better in terms of lifetime accuracy no matter what. So no strategy will sort of dominate that probability axiom obeying conditionalizing strategy. And if my strategy does anything else besides obey the probability axioms before and after updating and involve conditionalizing on my prior beliefs, then there will be some other strategy that dominates my strategy. And furthermore, the strategy that dominates it will be one where I obey the probability axioms before and after learning something and I conditionalize. So basically you get a kind of overall argument for both obeying the probability axioms and conditionalizing because that's the only way to avoid having a dominated sequence of actions. Okay, so this is really interesting because, I mean, we've talked about a lot of the big intuitions behind different ways you might reason on the basis of evidence. But the interesting thing about this area of research is that these different strategies actually get formally encoded as mathematical objects and you're like proving theorems about them. And this argument you just gave isn't just an informal argument. It's actually you've given a mathematical proof that no strategy for reasoning on the basis of evidence that is both probabilistic and conditionalizing can be dominated by any strategy that is not both of those things. In fact, no strategy that is both probabilistic and conditionalizing can be dominated by any strategy, full stop. Is there any special significance to the fact that this is a mathematical proof? Is it like, should we be more certain about the result now? Or So I guess there's a thing that we should be more certain about, which is that no strategy that is both probabilistic and conditionalizing is dominated by any other strategy. But... That doesn't mean we should necessarily be more certain that it's a good idea to conditionalize or that it's a good idea to have degrees of belief that are probabilistic, because that depends on how good you think the model I'm using is for representing real human beliefs. The model sort of assumes that, well, it assumes that you have beliefs about finitely many things, which seems all right to me. Maybe you could generalize it to one where you have beliefs about infinitely many things that seems easier for the conditionalizing part than the probabilistic part. It assumes that sort of the things you have beliefs about have a certain structure. If you have a belief about something, you also have a belief about whether it's not the case. And if you have a belief about this and a belief about that, then you have a belief about whether they're both the case. Uh, That seems all right. Uh, A kind of more interesting assumption is that Whenever you learn something, you kind of had a predefined question that the thing you learned was an answer to. 
and that you're guaranteed to learn some answer to the question and that no two answers are compatible. And you might think, oh, that's a little bit of an idealization in many situations of learning don't look like that. And another assumption that the model makes is that you don't learn any new concepts between when you start off and when you end up. And so when those assumptions don't obtain, conditionalization might not be the right thing to do. I certainly haven't argued that it is when those assumptions don't obtain. Yeah, interesting. So it seems like following this method, these sort of like abstract mathematical models, the relations, they stand into each other. We can be super confident about that part. The point where there can be a lot of push and shove of debate is whether these formal models capture everything important that there is to capture about actual human reasoning behavior. Absolutely. Oh, I should mention another uh, another thing that, that this doesn't tell you. So this basically tells you if you want to be consistent over time, you should make sure to behave in a conditionalizing way. But it doesn't tell you what to do uh, if you've screwed up at the beginning. So if I want to be consistent right now, and I believe that the Earth is flat, then I shouldn't also believe that the Earth is not flat. But you might think that's not really a good reason to sort of refuse to believe that the Earth is not flat, just because you believe that the Earth is flat and you want to be consistent. Because the thing you're trying to be consistent with is a mistake. And you might think, look, if you start off in sort of a bad belief place, then you shouldn't conditionalize anyway, because conditionalization, as I'm pitching it, is a way to be consistent across time. But consistency is only a virtue if the thing that you're trying to make consistent doesn't contain bad opinions that would just be better thrown out. Okay, right. So this argument maybe captures one part of the puzzle about how to reason on the basis of evidence, which is like, be consistent with your prior beliefs. I mean, obviously, you don't want to be inconsistent with your prior beliefs. But not maybe that's not the, it. <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. Of course, sometimes we accidentally are. But maybe it's not the whole story, because clearly, there's more to um, getting things right at the end of the day, than just being consistent with your prior beliefs and commitments. Yeah, that's right. So a good analogy maybe is ethicists sometimes talk about sort of wide scope versus narrow scope rules of ethics. So a wide scope rule is that you should always keep your promises. That is like, you shouldn't promise to do something and then not do it. But a narrow scope reading of that would be, well, if you've promised to do a thing, then you should do it. And you might think there there are lots of cases where that's not true. So if I've promised to murder your enemies, I shouldn't murder your enemies, even though I promised to do it. Like I shouldn't have promised to do it in the first place. And so conditionalization kind of, I've defended a wide scope version where you shouldn't have some priors and then fail to conditionalize on them. But if you shouldn't have had those priors in the first place, then maybe it's okay to fail to conditionalize on them. So what new light does this argument for conditionalizing shed on our reasons for doing it uh, relative to previous work? So I think it explains how this intuition that conditionalizing is a rule of consistency over time, which is something that a lot of earlier decision theorists have claimed. And the usual way of arguing that conditionalization is a rule of consistency over time is to argue that uh, people who fail to conditionalize uh, will sort of behave in inconsistent ways, that they'll make choices that result in a sure loss. And this is a little bit unsatisfying because you think, look, the point of forming beliefs, I mean, it's nice that your beliefs can help you make wise choices. But 
beliefs should be evaluated by, you know, how true or false they're likely to be, how well supported they are by the evidence and not just by their pragmatic effects. So this is a kind of non-pragmatic argument that conditionalizing is required for consistency of a certain kind. And it's part of this bigger epistemic decision theory project, which tries to evaluate opinions using decision theory, but just not using their pragmatic effects, not sort of whether they make you rich or whether they make you happy, but just whether they are correct. R.A. Briggs, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. <laughs> if you have any questions about today's episode, give us a holler on Twitter at, at @elucidationspod. And as always, you can post a comment to our blog at Lucian, that's L-U-C-I-A-N, lucian.uchicago.edu, slash blogs, slash elucidations. On the blog, you can also explore our full back catalog of previous episodes. Thanks again for listening. Thanks again for listening.